But if we treated peeing like we did eating and hunger, it would be hilarious. So like if we were to wake up in the morning at 8 a.m. and we were like, wow, I really need to pee. And you're like, well, I have to wait till 10 a.m. to pee. Or like, let's say you go pee at, at noon and then an hour later you need to pee again. And you're like, geez, body, I can't believe you need to pee again. This is ridiculous. We just peed an hour ago. What's wrong with you? You shouldn't need to pee. I'm going to have to wait a few more hours to pee, which is what we do with hunger. We like eat. And then if we're hungry an hour later, we're like, I shouldn't be hungry. Why am I hungry? I ate an hour ago. What's going on? If you peed six times and you're like, I'm only allowed to pee seven times today. I'm going to have to wait till tomorrow to pee. If you have rules around like carbs or calories, you're like, well, I've already met my macros. I have to wait till tomorrow. Like if we treated peeing the way we did eating, it'd be fucking hilarious. I think it's just as ridiculous to judge our hunger this way, to let the clock rule our lives to not honor our bodies. Welcome to Let's Thrive the Podcast, a place for holistic storytelling with none of the BS and a whole lot of fun. I'm your host, Emily Feichels, and my mission is to interview guests that inspire, educate, and empower you to live your best life. In these stories, you will see a part of your own journey reflected in theirs and learn to grow from it. And with that said, let's thrive. Welcome back to Let's Thrive the Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Feichels, and it's such a pleasure to have you listening today. We have an amazing, truly, truly amazing episode today with Kara Cefeli of Kara's Kitchen. Now, you guys know that I have quite the past with disordered eating and all that not-so-fun diet culture things, which is why it has been just so enlightening and such an honor to talk with Kara and then to be able to share that conversation and all her wisdom and advice and experience with all of you guys listening as well. Now I've tried to record this intro about three times now before I finally realized what was wrong with the previous two and what direction I needed to take this intro, the one that you are hearing right now. Something that Kara and I really discuss in this episode is, you know, there's a lot of things. We discuss orthorexia and just, you know, like our thin, obsessed culture and all of these amazing tidbits of, you know, wisdom. But the fundamental message, you know, that I think I took away from talking with Kara and then editing back the episode, listening through it again, is that recovery is just such, such a journey. It's such a process. It's not a straight line. It's not some, you know, some checklist that you can check off every time you do something good. I mean, it's just a scribble, as Kara explains in this episode. And there's highs and lows and all these in-betweens. And you can think that you're doing so great and then, boom, something pops up. And I feel like I've come to this realization and I'm going to start talking about this more on Instagram, but just how deep these roots of diet culture and disordered eating goes. And I've made loads and loads of progress over the past two years since I realized what orthorexia was and diet culture. And since I began this, you know, disordered eating recovery work that I do, but there's still so many things that I struggle with. And I think it took me a long time to understand that you can do the work, you can be actively working towards recovery, and still be struggling with these issues. 
And talking with Kara just really highlighted some things in my own life that I think I, I was just avoiding or maybe covering up. And I need to work through those and I need to be open about it because something we discuss in this episode is how when it comes to life or recovery, whichever it is, we see the highlight reel on Instagram. And specifically for recovery talk, like we see the wins and we see the highs and we don't always see the lows. And then that makes you feel bad about your own process, right? And I'm guilty of that too, I guess. You know, I just don't think it's always beneficial for me to go on and say, hey guys, I'm really not loving my body today and I feel pressured to eat less and work out more, right? Like that's hard to say. And that to me doesn't feel beneficial to anybody. But we all face that. We all face those days. It doesn't define us. It doesn't mean that we're, you know, not recovering. That's just a hiccup. It's just a bump along the road. And I think if we can all, and myself included in this, be a bit more open about not only the highs, but the lows and everything in between, everyone will benefit. And so... It was just interesting after this conversation with Kara to really analyze what are some habits, thoughts, beliefs that I'm still holding on to, that roots still go deep, you know, deep within my mind. And one of them, and we discussed this on air in the episode, you'll hear us chat it, is um, on emotional restriction, right? So I am at a point now where, you know, I haven't really physically restricted in a long time, or so I thought, right? Until one night when I came home late from work at, you know, like literally midnight. And I was kind of hungry, but I just didn't eat. And I woke up in the morning like absolutely famished. And my first thought was, why didn't I just eat last night? Like, why was it so easy for me to just ignore that hunger cue and choose sleep? And then wake up in the morning feeling like lightheaded and famished, right? Like that just doesn't make sense. And on the topic of emotional restriction, it's difficult, I think, for me because when you're genuinely interested in health and wellness, right? Like, I'm someone that's had chronic hep C and, like, insane hormone and gut issues, and so I'm genuinely interested in the field of health and wellness for those specific reasons because I've had to heal my body from very traumatic conditions. But it can get complicated, right, when you're, as an example, so this is an example, I'm so sorry I'm fumbling my words, but I'm literally recording this on the fly, thinking aloud. So this is my like thought process. For an example of this, as something Kara and I discuss is like the idea of overhealthifying foods. So yes, I love making variations of my favorite foods that are a bit more nutritionally balanced, I guess, to help with blood sugar or with my gut issues or whatever it is. But like at the end of the day, when is the point when like you're overhealthifying and you're emotionally restricting from the fact that you just want a fucking donut? You don't want like a gluten-free vegan donut that sure it tastes amazing, but is it a real deal donut? I don't think so. <laughs> and I mean, it gets tricky, right? Like I'm already fumbling for my words, so I'm probably just going to wrap things up around here, but it's just wow. You know, I, I I wasn't expecting to take so much away from the conversation with Kara, but she really opened my eyes to a lot, and I really hope it does the same for you all listening. 
Uh, we do discuss so many important topics, uh, oh, just so many things about diet culture and how disordered eating is such a mental issue and impacts our mental health so much. We discuss emotional restriction, how to overcome fear foods, and the scarcity to abundance mindset, all these wonderful topics. So I just, so I'm so excited for you all to listen. And, you know, once more, my apologies for such a ramble, ramble intro, but I was just really trying to speak from from the heart and not so much from the mind. You know, not so much what I should be saying and more of what I want to say. And I, I really hope it resonated, connected, at least in some way. If you like the episode, if it connects with you, let us know, tag us. Kara is on Instagram at Kara's Kitchen. I'm on there at Emily Feichels and at Let's Thrive Podcast. I would love to hear your thoughts, to connect, to discuss. And if you're feeling extra grateful for this episode, this podcast, feel free to leave a rate and review. It does help the show, but either way, I'm just grateful you're here listening. Lots of love for you all and let's jump into this convo. You know, as I was explaining in my emails to you, I really wanted to have this episode be educational, inspiring, kind of like that advice-focused feel to it, and have parts of your own journey and story with eating disorder kind of shine through in that aspect. So I wanted to start out in that like recovery field. So in your journey to recovering, what would you say were two of the most important mindset shifts that you needed to make? Yeah. The, the first really big shift for me was just really committing and deciding. So prior to the moment where I was like, okay, I really want to get better. I'm committed to doing the work. There was always like, yeah, I want to get better. I don't want this, but like, I'm not ready to not be caught up in these behaviors anymore. Like I'm not really ready to let go of my eating disorder I had bulimia. I was like a restrictor, a binger, a purger. And the first really big shift was like really just a declaration was just like, okay, got it. I can't keep doing this anymore. I'm, I don't want to keep living this life and I'm going to do whatever it takes. So that was the first one. I really think that you need to be ready and willing to do the work. And you have to want it because recovery is challenging. It's difficult. It's unbelievably messy. It's not a straight line. It's a scribble. And you're going to have to face a lot of fears and do things that are scary and that counteract everything that your eating disorder says or what diet culture says if you're struggling with disordered eating and dieting. And so you have to really be ready. So that was really the first fundamental shift that occurred was like, I really got like, okay, I want recovery. And it was like a commitment, a declaration and a big decision. It wasn't like, okay, I think I'm going to like put one foot in my eating disorder and like one foot in recovery because that shit doesn't work. You're not going to get anywhere. It's like, okay, I'm committing and I'm doing the work consistently and I'm going to do what it takes. And it's not perfect. I'm going to have days where I'm like, I feel like I'm making no progress or I'm floundering or I'm falling backwards. But even if that happens, I know that my commitment is forward towards recovery, regardless of how many times I fall down. I love that. And I actually wanted to ask you on that idea. Do you think that's where I think a lot of us in this field with eating disorders, whatever it is, we could see tendencies of something like OCD or perfectionism or like people pleasing. And when you were discussing that idea of, you know, it's not a straight line, it's a scribble, kind of for some reason brought up this analogy of 
you know, so many of us want to have everything colored in all nice and tidy. And we imagine recovery as like uh, a straight, straightforward path, something we can set goal, you know, just be real perfectionist about and controlling of when in reality, it's anything but that. I mean, it's like a freaking roller coaster and you never know what to expect. So do you think that kind of plays into that perfectionist tendency then of we want everything to go exactly as we can and be perfect, even in the idea of recovery? Yeah, 100%, right? So like, we just want it to be perfect and easy. And we want it to be that straight line. And, you know, we have that sort of rigid relationship with food in our bodies that um, is, is still a part of us when we enter into the recovery process of just wanting things to be perfect and wanting things to be black and white and wanting it to be a straight line. And I also think we are somewhat as a culture, like a little adverse to like negative thoughts and negative emotions and to having bad days, right? Like we have this, we see like Instagram, which is loaded with this highlight reel. And we just see like everybody's like sparkly, perfect lives. And we talk about like how perfect things are, but really we all know behind the scenes that people have bad days. People get stressed out. There's days where people are curled up in a blanket crying, but they're not necessarily posting that on Instagram. And so you don't see it. And so while, yeah, there are definitely, you know, people online who are more transparent for the vast majority of us, we're more often just showing like the good parts. And that's like fine to some degree, but I think it creates this illusion that like we shouldn't struggle and that we shouldn't have bad days. And that being sad is a problem when really I think that as human beings, we're really complex and we have the ability to feel a vast array of emotions. And I think, you know, something I learned from Brene Brown, she says that the darkness does not destroy the light. It defines it. It's our fear of the dark that casts our joy into the shadows. And so that shows us that it's, it's okay to have these really bad days and these really difficult times, but it's when we think we're not supposed to have them and we reject them and we resist them and we avoid them that we actually run into things like eating disorders because we're not willing to feel the vast array of emotions that we have the capacity really to feel. So to answer your question, yes, I think we, our perfectionist tendency gets in there. And I think a, a, a mindset shift is to just know that it's going to be challenging and messy and it's so okay. Learn from, learn from falling down. It's more just about making sure you get up. It's not about making sure you walk a tightrope in recovery, you know? Right. Like we're just so afraid of feeling those, like you said, negative emotions. And I think it gets to the point where they build up and they bottle up inside you and then boom, I mean, like they explode. We've all been there where maybe it's, yeah, like you kind of fall down a rabbit hole with something or you have a freak out at your boss. Like there's always something that comes when you withhold those strong emotions. And then, you know, what you were saying too about just kind of like that fearing of the darkness and everything that comes with it, there is just in our culture overall, just that fear of failure and more so like a fear of admitting, admitting, admitting it. <laughs> and I think that's like more of the issue with Instagram too, is because we unintentionally create this highlight reel of our life. And then we feel like we have to live up to it. Right. So if one of us is talking about body image and ED recovery and all this amazing stuff, and then we have a day where our body image is complete shit, or we have those old thoughts come in, we kind of feel off about sharing that because it's like, well, wait a minute here. Like that's not the message I usually give out. So I think it can also kind of be that struggle too. If we just don't want to admit when something goes wrong or a quote unquote setback or failure, when in reality, like that's where we grow and that's where others grow too. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think we have that fear of what are people going to think? Like, uh, are they going to take us as seriously next time? Are they going to judge us, et cetera? You know, I, I think that that's really common, especially if you're someone who's seen as a, maybe an authority figure in the space, it might be challenging for you to want to say, Hey, I'm having a hard time with this thing that I'm supposed to quote, like be an expert in or whatever. But I also think we have plenty of examples of people who are seen as leaders in the space and partly they're leaders because they're like, Hey, I have bad days too. And it's cool. You know? Yeah. Right. And I think if we all, I mean, most of us, at least if we fundamentally think about it, we could probably diverse, you know, split our feed into people that we just follow because their life is pretty or it's something we want, kind of like the idea of an expander. I don't know. And then we have the people where it's like, they just share the real shit. And it's like, those are the people that we kind of find ourselves being drawn to their page. And I mean, at least I know that's the case for me and a few of my friends where it's like, we just kind of have both of those people that you can follow. And I think, you know, it's, it's fine to follow a bit of both, just as long as you're realistic about you know, <laughs> what's the highlight reel and what's the real reel. So, um, you know, and then also I wanted to discuss kind of on this idea of how it all affects our mind and mental health. I think that it's something becoming a bit more mainstream and I know it, I'm sure you know it, but eating disorders aren't just a physical issue. There are so, there's so much going on in the mind and the mental health aspect of it. So I'm just curious to hear like, how did your experience and journey going through those struggles in those years really impact your mental health or your mindset and just overall way of thinking? Mm. Yeah. So they're a mental health issue, right? Like that's how they arise in the diagnostic criteria. Like they're under the category of mental health. Like they're not a physical, they're not quote a physical health issue, even though you can absolutely have uh, physical side effects, right? Mm. So like there's a lot of um, physical health issues that can occur when you have an eating disorder, they fall into the criteria of a mental, like they're under that, that's the diagnosis, the diagnosis is going to be a mental health issue. So I mean, the mental health piece, I feel like was everything. Because even me getting to a place where I felt better about my body was a shift in perspective, not a shift in my physical form. And so much of my disordered relationship with food was wrapped up around insecurities of like not feeling good enough, not worry, uh, worried about rejection, worried about people not loving me, not liking me. It was so much of a coping mechanism. So just, you know, the trauma that I experienced growing up and not knowing how to deal with it. My parents, not really, you know, they're baby boomers. So their generation is very hush hush about mental health. They're like, oh, she saw a therapist. And then now we have this like, dude, my therapist told me, right? Like our generation has a very different relationship with mental health than the generation before me. I might be a generation above you. I'm not sure. Um, but there was not really a conversation around taking care of your mental health. That wasn't really a thing. And looking back, I'm like, why was I not in therapy? Or like, why was like, I not seeing a counselor, you know, looking back at all of this just growing up, but it just wasn't a conversation. And I also think that because our culture is so healthist, like we're all about like health and wellness and exercising and like you're being so good, good for you around, you know, people engaging in these health promoting behaviors that it's really easy to not know that there is an underlying mental issue going on, that this person's relationship with health is actually incredibly unhealthy 
mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. And so that was a component, but for me, everything was mental, you know, like it was all mindset shifts, perspective shifts, inner child work, healing my trauma, like just understanding, like, why was it that I found myself locked up in my bedroom, binge eating on food for hours? Like, why was I doing that? Like, what was I escaping from? What was I avoiding? What was I not dealing with? So it was all mental and emotional. You know, I think you can say it's about our physical appearance, but we all know it's not actually about our physical appearance because people of all different shapes and sizes deal with this. It's not like a thin person's problem or like a fat person's problem. It's just a problem that people struggle with. And it's so much of a cultural piece as well. So that was a component too of realizing how much my culture had impacted me, how much being praised, you know, I'm tall and thin. And so just getting, that was like my main source of validation and I fed off of it. And I wasn't really sure that I was worth anything past what I looked like for a really long time. I wasn't conscious of the fact that that's what I thought, but that's what I thought that I was like being thin and pretty is really the only thing I have going for me. Um, and detangling that was a massive piece of my own personal recovery. So like going back to the first question of like the mindset shifts, the second one was just detaching my worth from what I looked like and finding value in myself outside of my appearance. Like that was huge in addition to just like dealing with my trauma from childhood, you know, which is why I had this eating disorder. Right. And that's something I've been exploring a lot more lately is that idea of you know, in our world, we don't, we don't see it when it comes to eating disorders. Like we don't see it until it's an extreme. So people think of the physical aspects of eating disorders at the extremes of like you get to a certain weight size and your doctor's telling you you need to lose weight or you're so tiny, you know, so thin and just malnourished that people actually get alarmed. And there's no in between, there's no indicator of wow, my mental health is not doing so great right now. I mean, you know, people could look, there's so many people struggling right now with eating disorders, but because their bodies don't indicate it, nobody's raising questions. And instead we just keep on going like day-to-day life. And I think that's what's hard because at that point it becomes something you have to do on your own, right? Like nobody's going to come up to you and say, hey, I think you need help because you look normal to the outside world. And so I think that's why it's just so important to really, yeah, like open up the conversation around mental health and how an eating disorder really does impact the mind. I mean, the way it changes how you view your body, body dysmorphia, the way you think about food and exercise. And it was, you know, one of your more recent podcast episodes that just really hit home and had me thinking about this topic was when you were discussing the way that normal eaters think differently than people with like an eating disorder or diet culture. And that just, it was such a home run, you know, especially with me of, yeah, like this shows the difference in a mental landscape between those two types of people. So could you talk on that just, you know, briefly, the idea behind like our minds, we actually think differently than, you know, quote unquote, normal people when it comes to food, exercise, and even our bodies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'll get into that. I wanted to add a little point to what you're saying of like, we think that eating disorders are a body size issue, but they're not, right? So this the type of behaviors 
that would be very obviously eating disorder behaviors in someone who is emaciated, is that the word, you know, like incredibly thin are the same types of behaviors that we glamorize and promote in people in larger bodies. And we make the assumption that, well, because they're in a larger body, these behaviors are actually good for them because we are a thin obsessed culture. And there are plenty of people across the size spectrum who are dealing with eating disorders, but are, like you said, our culture views it as a body size issue. And even it's actually one of my biggest criticisms about the diagnostic criteria is that in order to be diagnosed with anorexia, you have to have a certain BMI. And if you don't have that BMI, it's called atypical anorexia, but it's not atypical anorexia. That's just reflective of our fat phobia and that we, you know, think, oh, well, if you're in a bigger body and you have anorexia, that's atypical. And that's just reflective of exactly what you were speaking to of how there is just this part of us that sees it as a physical uh, a physical thing or that you can somehow tell if someone's struggling based on what they look like. But, you know, the most common, one of the most common comments that I would receive was like, wow, you're so healthy because of what I looked like. But I'm like, oh yeah, no, I'm just like throwing up every day. Yeah. Really healthy. But again, from the outside, you wouldn't know that, you know? Um, so getting into your question about like how we think differently, that was the question, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I loved that pr- previous point you made too, like praise hands to it because it's so, so damn true. But, um, yeah. So just like the difference that I was curious about that podcast episode you did between just normal eaters and the rest of us, you know, struggling through life right now. Yeah. I think a really great indicator for people is to actually really look at to what degree am I emotionally attached to the choices I make around food in my body? Meaning how quote good do I feel or how, how quote bad do I feel? How much shame arises? How much guilt arises? How much judgment, anger, disappointment, frustration, feeling like I need to earn it, feeling like I need to make up for it or how proud of myself am I for eating a low calorie meal or right. So really looking at your emotional attachment and looking at your relationship to food and exercise is really the distinguishing factor because it's not that like exercising and eating salad is inherently disordered or inherently like um, a diet culture eating disorder choice. Rather, it's really that person's relationship to those decisions, to the exercise, to the food that is the, the, is the distinction there. So really looking at how emotionally attached are you when you eat a cupcake? Like how does that affect your emotional well-being and your mindset? That's often where the difference is because you can have someone who eats a cupcake and was like, that was good, metaphorical period, moving on with my life. That's a normal eater. They're not emotionally attached. Like I ate the cupcake, it was great, whatever, moving on. Someone who has a disordered relationship with food is going to have a lot of morality around that, a lot of thoughts, a lot of judgments of like, should I eat this? What is this going to do to my body? Am I, should I be like, then you start eating it and you're like, should I be eating this? Oh my God, is this going to make me gain weight? Am I going to have to exercise more tomorrow? Am I going to have to restrict food tomorrow? You eat the cupcake and then you feel bad. You're like, that was a bad choice. Like that's going to make me gain weight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, what's your relationship to it? How emotionally attached are you to the decisions that you make? That is so much just like the difference. We think that it's like willpower and self-control that someone can have a cupcake and move on with them li- their life as opposed to eating the whole tray of cupcakes. We think it's a willpower thing. No, it's a difference in thinking. They don't feel shame for eating the cupcake. They eat the cupcake and move on. 
Whereas someone who has a disordered relationship with food might eat the cupcake and be like, oh, well, I blew it. I might as well eat all of them and diet starts tomorrow. That's a thought process. You know, normal leaders just think differently about food, meaning they think differently about themselves. They feel differently about themselves when they eat. It's not a dilemma. Oh, a hundred percent. And anyone who has, you know, had an eating disorder, even disordered eating tendencies will know exactly what you're talking about where, you know, yeah, any food choice you go to make, it can be the simplest thing. And you just, it's like, you're deciding what college to go to, or, you know, like what to do with the rest of your life. It becomes a huge issue. And, you know, there's just so many other ways that affects your life that you could go on about, but also like, I'm just curious to hear your idea too. Lately, I've been diving into just the idea of, you know, there gets to be a point like I'm now in my recovery journey where I don't restrict food in any manner, but I've been contemplating this idea of like emotional restricting, right? So you, you know, like make the dessert, but you're like over healthifying it or you're eating the cupcake, but you're still feeling somewhere inside of you like this kind of iffy guilt, shame, you know, like it might not be up front, but I'm just kind of diving into this idea of like, are there any ways that I'm emotionally restricting, right? Like what I can eat or what experience I get out of eating a food. Uh, and then how does that play into later in the day if I overeat, not, you know, not like a full binge, but really just kind of <laughs> go all in. So I'm curious, like if you've had any experience with that type of thing. Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways in which restriction shows up. So it sounds like you were saying, I no longer physically restrict food, Mm -hmm. right? So you've given yourself permission to eat these certain types of foods, different quantities of foods, eating amounts of foods that nourish you and feel satisfying. You're, you're no longer like restricting entire food groups. It sounds like you've gotten to a place where you're not physically restricting, but there's still very much mental and emotional restriction at play. Yeah. Like, you know, like it just seems to some degree. Yeah. Like there's just certain foods where it's like some part of my brain's brain still trying to say like, Hey now, you know, like that old voice popping up, like, Hey now. And whether I'm realizing it or it's subconscious, I don't know, but I've just kind of been curious to yeah, dive into that. Yeah. Yeah. So we have physical restriction, which we've talked about, which is like, Hey, I'm reducing the amount of carbs I'm eating, or I'm reducing the calories or you know, the types of foods and the quantities of foods. That's like physical restriction. It's really easy to identify Mm -hmm. and it's really easy to eliminate. The more difficult levels of restriction to eliminate are those ones that are internal and emotional. So a really common form of restriction is like, oh, diet starts tomorrow. So we restrict ourselves in the future. Like we plan to restrict come January 1 or we plan to restrict come Monday, right? Or I'm going to restrict all the way till Friday and then I'm going to go batshit crazy on Saturday and Sunday and then diet starts again on Monday, right? So we restrict ourselves in the future. That's a type of restriction that definitely impacts the way we show up in the present moment with food. Because if we're like, oh, well, scarcity is coming tomorrow, you know, no more food starting tomorrow. Well, I better eat it all and eat it all right now. That's what it implies. So that's a type of restriction that occurs up in the mind, but like fully impacts the way we show up with food in the present moment. And then the one that you were kind of alluding to is what I call vitamin P restriction, where we're putting something in our mouth but the entire time we're doing it, we're questioning and judging ourselves. So we're, we're restricting ourselves from pleasure and satisfaction, vitamin P. So you might be physically putting it in your mouth, but you're really emotionally and mentally not, not actually really okay with it. So that's a type of restriction that like, again, really impacts our relationship with food, our emotional attachment to food is present. 
and it can impact how much food we eat in the moment. And so you just, even you just being aware of it is incredible. You just being like, wow, I'm noticing I'm having this judgment about this food that I'm eating right now. That's interesting. Wow. Okay. Where did I learn that? What diet was that from? Huh? Okay. And what do I want to be true for me? Do I want to fully believe like, oh, I can eat this. No problem. Right. So when you're noticing that you're having those, those vitamin P restrictions, those emotional restrictions, awareness is step one. And then you, you know, you get to be like, okay, well, what do I want my relationship to be with this? And that's where you start to rewire your brain and you start to choose those more empowering thoughts. You're like, Hey, unconditional permission. So that's the more subtle restriction. So I have women who come to me all the time who are like, Oh, I don't diet but yet I'm still thinking about food all the time. I'm still counting the amount of calories or carbs, or I'm still judging myself or shaming myself or feeling like I need to make up for it. And it's like, okay, got it. You might not be on a traditional diet, but you're still very much thinking like a dieter, which is the type of restriction that you were mentioning. It's the, the diet mentality. And so your relationship with food is the same, whether or not you were on a prescribed diet, right? Or like following your food rules, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Especially that vitamin P like that was, you put it into words, exactly what I was trying to explain. And I think it's something that, you know, every day I discover not every day, but you know, you keep discovering more foods that you used to have a fear about, or you just had like a, a feeling about them, something, you know, diet culture once told you. And when you work through them, I think that vitamin P part is a big part of it too. Um, so I love that. And you mentioned at the one point, like scarcity, and that's another thing that I I've always kind of faced and I'm still working through is that scarcity mindset too, when it comes to food and just interviewing the someone the other day and we were discussing the idea of, you know, so many of us experience that yo-yo or back and forth between scarcity and surplus, right? Like we're, we're all in or we're like, no, like withhold restrict. So like, how do you help people? I'm just kind of curious, like your ideas on that, your experience, or even when someone comes to you and they're struggling with that, you know, going back and forth or, just the scarcity mindset in general. How do you advise someone work through that? Mm. Right. So we have this black and white, all or nothing. I'm either in scarcity or I'm in abundance, right? I'm eating mm -hmm. no cupcakes or I'm knee deep in cupcake batter, right? <laughs> you know, that's how it is for a lot of us. So a lot of that is just a, is the, the abundance, like the like overeating or the, the binging or whatever is, is simply a result of your level of restriction. It's simply a result of your level of scarcity. Because if you truly believed that you could eat whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted, there's no emergency. If you truly believed that like, oh, tomorrow I can have a cupcake if I want it, like you really believed that, there would be no point to eat 15 today, right? There'd be no point because you're like, I can just have it tomorrow. So the biggest thing is like, is really getting that you can eat what you want when you want. And when you do that, it takes away the scarcity mindset. Same with future perceived. Like if you think like, oh, tomorrow I need to not have this ever again because it's really bad for me. Or like, I'll start watching what I eat tomorrow. The, that implies I better get it all in now because it's going away. So like what supports you in no longer having this like scarcity mindset around food is really making that commitment to yourself of like, I'm not gonna restrict anymore. I'm not going to take food away. And that's difficult because there's body image work that goes into that. We have a whole 
you know, diet culture, wellness culture that has demonized certain types of foods. We've probably followed several different ways of eating, you know, like we've done paleo, we've done bulletproof, we've done whole 30, we've done low fat, we've done low carb, we've done slow carb, we've done vegan, we've done raw food vegan, we've done Ayurveda, we've like done them all, right? We've done no sugar, whatever. And it's like, at some point, we had a rule around every single different type of food. And so it's really challenging to work through all of that and get to a place where like, you're neutral to food. Nothing has a, an emotional charge around it. And it's when things are no longer charged for you, meaning they don't elicit a strong emotional response. That's when you're just like, food is no big deal. Like whatever, I'll eat what I want when I want. And it's not a big deal. And I can move on with my life. No story, no planning my life around what I'm eating type of a thing. And like really getting to that place just requires you really believing that you can have what you want when you want and there's no more restriction present right because like, scarcity yeah. like restriction creates the binging scarcity is what creates that quote overeating binging behavior mm -hmm. yeah and i think like part of that would also be timing constraints i know that's something i used to really struggle with and there's just so much out there now about you know intermittent fasting and do you snack or do you not snack and if people do like there's just food combining or there's just so many rules even about not what we're eating, but when we're eating and when's best to eat and when not to eat. And I think that can also play into it, right? Because if you know, if you said you can't eat past, you know, set amount, you know, X amount, X time at night, and then you, but you want, like, it just creates that idea of, I better, like you said, I better get it all in now because in an hour I'm not going to be able to eat. And I think that's it. That's a deep conditioning too that we have thrown at us constantly of just time constraints and when when to just eat, which is kind of a crazy concept if you think about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like I have you know listened to plenty of podcasts and and read plenty of research about intermittent fasting and understand the like scientific argument around it. And I also believe it's completely ridiculous for the for the vast majority of people. Like unless you're in a medical intervention and you're being supervised by a doctor, I don't know why we let the clock rule our lives as opposed to listening to our bodies. I like, especially those who are struggling with their relationship with food and their body image. I think intermittent facts, intermittent fasting is just like a fun way to say I'm restricting my eating and I'm starving myself and et cetera, et cetera. I think for most human beings, it's ridiculous and just creates more stress around food, more rules, more rigidity around food. Like what happens if you want to go out to eat with your friends, right? Mm -hmm. Like, or what happens if you wake up and you're hungry or what happens if it's past 7 PM and you're hungry? Are you going to really let the clock rule your life? Or are you going to listen to your body and be like, okay, I'm hungry. Yeah. I'm going to go eat something. I like to, whenever we start talking about the clock, because this is definitely something that arises with so many of my clients is I like to relate it to having to pee. So a hunger, a hunger signal is just information from your body that it's hungry and that it has this desire for food, right? And you can go honor your hunger or not. So just like if you need to pee and your body, you're feeling that sensation in your bladder of like, oh, okay, I need to go pee. Typically we don't judge that body sensation, that signal. We're just like, okay, got it. I'm going to go to pee. But if we treated peeing like we did eating and hunger, it would be hilarious. So like if we were to wake up in the morning at 8 a.m. and we were like, wow, I really need to pee. And you're like, well, I have to wait till 10 a.m. to pee. So I'm going to wait till 10 a.m. to pee because I can't go at 8 a.m. 
right? Or like, let's say you go pee at, at noon and then an hour later you need to pee again. And you're like, geez, body, I can't believe you need to pee again. This is ridiculous. We just peed an hour ago. What's wrong with you? You shouldn't need to pee. I'm going to have to wait a few more hours to pee. So it's appropriate, right? Which is what we do with hunger. We like eat. And then if we're hungry an hour later, we're like, I shouldn't be hungry. Why am I hungry? I ate an hour ago. What's going on? Or like if you peed six times and you're like, I'm only allowed to pee seven times today. I'm going to have to wait till tomorrow to pee. If you have rules around like carbs or calories, you're like, well, I've already met my macros. I have to wait till tomorrow. Like if we treated peeing the way we did eating, it'd be fucking hilarious. It'd be ridiculous. And so I think that it's ridiculous. I think it's just as ridiculous to judge our hunger this way, to let the clock rule our lives, to not honor our bodies. Like I think it is, is just as absurd. And so when I'm supporting someone in no longer living by the clock or no longer letting their hunger be a rule by which they must obey, because hunger is not a, it's not a rule, right? So a lot of us will think I can only eat when I'm hungry and I must stop with that when I'm full or else. And it's like, that's the hunger fullness diet right? Like you can eat when you're not hungry. That's fine. Like eat something, move on with your life. But we live with that rigidity. We turn hunger and fullness into a rule. But when I'm supporting somebody getting to a place where they're more, they have more attunement with themselves, with their body sensations and with their hunger, I always have them say, whenever you're questioning your hunger, if you should eat, go back to like, well, what would you do if you needed to pee? And then you can see when diet culture is at play, when your diet mentality is at play and it supports you and being like, okay, I'm going to honor my body right now. It's asking for food. Oh, I love that. I am just like laughing, but it's so like, it's so just so true. It's so damn true. Like it, if we ever considered withholding our pee, which I would be the worst at, like I have the smallest bladder, like it's just hilarious to think of it that way. And I think it's so true and something that people can really relate to and I mean, at the end of the day, it just comes down to building that self-trust, right? Like trusting our own body (laughs) rather than what society tells us to be doing. So what would be like a tip or two you have for someone wanting to build that self-trust? So besides, you know, just kind of thinking of it, yeah, like, do I have to pee? Do I, am I hungry? Like thinking of it that way. But what would you say is like another way that someone could help build that self-trust to really be in tune with their body? Mm. While I think bringing awareness to the rules that you have is incredibly important. So like, what rules have I been following? What are my food rules? Like that's step one. And then you get to have fun breaking them. (laughs) You know, you get to have fun uh, listening to your body as opposed to what some external authority says or what your diet brain is saying about what you should be eating, when you should be eating, how much you should be eating, or if you should be eating at all, you get to just start to listen. And I think when you think about building trust with rebuilding that trust with your body, your body also needs to learn to trust you again, because if you've been restricting it and starving it and punishing it with exercise, it also doesn't really trust you. And so I like to think about it. Well, how do you build trust? with a person how do you when you meet somebody new how do you cultivate a genuine relationship where there's mutual respect and there's mutual communication and there's love present and you just how would you do that and then like you know answer that what would that look Mm -hmm. like for you building that trust and then okay we get to do that with our body we'd be in relation we'd be in communication there's a give and a take here right there's okay how can I honor what it is that my body is saying. And it might, it might not, we might not have solid, perfect trust at first, if we're just in the beginning of the trust building process, you know, but it takes time and 
being in communication and being relation and being in relationship and being gentle and curious about what your body might be asking for instead of immediately judging it when something arises, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, so many of us, we just rush through life and, you know, we ignore, I think there gets to be a point where when you ignore your body long enough and you ignore those cues, it just kind of stops giving the cues. Uh, And so I think that's like another thing that I know I struggled with at a point too, where it was like, I just didn't feel hunger enough. Right. Or like when I was trying to really start eating again and nourishing my body to a point it needed, it was hard sometimes to always feel that like hunger. Right. Cause I was used to the hunger and full idea. Uh, when over time, like my body just kind of started to naturally learn. I mean, I get hungry quite easily now <laughs> and it took some time though for my body to really trust the fact of, Hey, if I give you this cue, you're going to actually give me something to eat, right? Like I don't need to just shut down and not focus on you. So I think that's true. Just giving it time and patience and grace. Like it's like we said in the beginning, it's not a straight line, straight shoe, lots of scribbles in between. <laughs> yeah. It's like if, if someone keeps texting you and you don't ever text them back, most likely eventually they're just going to stop hitting you up. Right. Mm-hmm. And so then you might have to text that person a few times before they're like, okay, they fucked up. Okay. Maybe they want to be in communication again. Okay. Before you start responding back and forth and being more in active communication with one another, you know? So, mm-hmm. yeah. And I think it's really important if you're recovering from restrictive eating that, yeah, your hunger cues are probably going to be all off, which is why it's, it can be helpful to work with a professional and work with someone to support you and eating adequately and consistently if your hunger signals aren't reliable, because that's very, very common. And if you just rely on eating when you're hungry and you're recovering from a restrictive eating disorder, it's going to be really, really challenging because you can't trust your signals. Cause like you said, your body stops texting them to you. So, um, yeah, it's, it's important that we know that like intuitive eating isn't appropriate for everybody right away, mm-hmm. especially if you're in recovery from a restrictive eating disorder, it might, you might not be ready for intuitive eating. You might need someone to give you like a designated meal plan, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I just did a solo episode just explaining that idea of a friend and a friend of mine brought it up to my attention, but like the recovery timeline, right? So we, we compare ourselves and so many other aspects of life, unfortunately. And then also when it comes to recovery, we can form this timeline in our mind of what we think we should accomplish by said point. And then when a, you know, quote unquote setback, or you take a little step backwards happens, we get all down on ourselves. So I think that's like another part of it, like you said, is understanding that some people's timeline might look a lot shorter and other people might need those extra steps to work, you know, work back on it. But um, yeah. Totally a process. Yes. Totally a process. And it's in phases. Like I think recovery happens in phases, you know, it doesn't happen all at once. I think that's important to distinguish, you know, like mm-hmm. often we get to a better place with food before we get to a better place with our body. I think our body image is a more challenging piece. And so it happens, it's a process and it happens in phases and like totally go at your own pace. I love that you brought that in, like progress at your own pace, you know, stay in your lane and your recovery journey is going to be unique to you for sure. A hundred. I don't think there's one right way to recover. Yeah. No. And in that mindset too, of the different phases and that no, you know, and I know this will be unique for everyone, but I'm just curious to hear your thoughts too, when it does come to recovery in people that want to genuinely live like a healthier, no, 
see, I struggle with what words even use here, but they, you know, they're just passionate, I guess, about the health and wellness field or nourishing foods. And I mean, you're a cookbook author and I wanted to kind of integrate that into the conversation because I think it gets tricky where, you know, I have some people saying that, you know, with recovery, just like this all in mindset or, you know, like all foods count, but then I, for one, you know, have, I was recovering from like a chronic illness and I had a lot of food issues going on in that sense too, of what was not doing well in my body. So I'm just curious to see like what your thoughts are about that in between, you know, of recovery and the more health conscious food options we have out there. Mm. It's totally individual, right? So like Mm -hmm. for you, you have a different situation than me where you have a chronic illness that you have to bring awareness to and be respectful of and work in congruence with. And so your process and journey is going to look different from someone who isn't also dealing with a a chronic health issue, right? Or um, an autoimmune disease or whatever, right? So everybody's process is going to be a little different. So it's really important that you find someone who's going to support you and honor you and meet your needs and meet you where you're at you know, and uh, going back to what I had said before, it's about your relationship with these health promoting behaviors. So it's not that a salad is inherently a restrictive choice, but it can be a restrictive choice based on your relationship to that salad. So I'm someone who is incredibly passionate about taking care of my physical body, my mental body. I love to like eat salad and exercise, all of that. But my relationship to those things is very different now than it was when I was in the middle of my eating disorder. And I think there's always that confusion of like, well, intuitive eating and anti-diet and eating whatever you want, whenever you want means you're eating donuts every single day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner until the day you die. And it's like, that's ridiculous because you'd probably end up feeling like shit and you'd be like, give me a freaking salad. You're like, oh my God, I want a salad. You know, if you're listening to the body, if you're really truly listening to your body, it's going to send you signals for a wide variety of foods and for different types of movement, varying amounts of movement, varying intensities, especially if you're a woman who is menstruating, different types of, of movement modalities are going to feel more nourishing to you at various times in the month. And It's more, uh, again, like it's about your relationship to it. It's about the choice, the place from which the choice is coming from. So am I choosing this salad from a place of restriction, a place of um, I need to eat something low calorie because I need to make sure I don't gain weight or I need, I'm trying to lose weight. It's about the place from which you're choosing the salad, not the salad in and of itself. So it's not about whether or not you still can take care of your health in these health promoting behaviors. It's why am I engaging in them and to what degree and what is my desire? What is my out? What is the goal I'm trying to accomplish here? So do I think that you can get to a place where you're highly recovered and still value taking care of your health and have a really nourishing relationship with nutrient dense foods, with salad, with exercise? Yeah. Hell yeah. I'm a living, breathing example of that. And I also know that it can, that it can be incredibly disordered. You know, it's, so again, it's about our, our unique relationship to these things. And that's why it's called healing your relationship with food. 
healing your relationship with exercise, healing your relationship to your body, right? It's about our relationship to these things. It's not the things in and of themselves. Right. Oh, you, that spot on. I mean, yeah, food, exercise, they're not inherently bad, but too much of anything gets, you know, everything has its limitations. And I just love what you said. Also, just taking the time to question ourselves and determine, am I tying my self-worth to what I'm eating or how I'm moving or what I'm doing? Uh, I think that sometimes, you know, as we've mentioned before, we just kind of rush through and we don't realize, you know, why am I acting this way? Why am I making this choice, this decision? Um, All comes down to mindfulness, I bet, you know, just being mindful of what we're doing, what we're feeling, what we're seeing. And on that note, like when you were creating a cookbook, keeping in mind that your audience is, you know, with, through your podcast too, there's a lot of us going through deconditioning from diet culture and eating disorder recovery. How are you mindful when it comes to sharing like more health conscious options and your cookbook, which is beautiful? Um, you know, how are you mindful of even something such as language when describing these types of food? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I talk a lot about like my eating disorder in the like recipe header. So like oh, I love that <laughs> comes with a little description and I will even say things like, um, like I made a, I have a soup in there that is a, is a cauliflower leek soup. So it's like a potato and leek soup. And I said in there, I was like, by no means am I trying to make a low carb version of potato and leek soup. I was like, I love potatoes. They're amazing. You can eat them in abundance. And I was like, and I've chefed at um, so many women's retreats. I've had the the honor of getting to chef at these really beautiful, like sacred sisterhood gatherings and women's retreats. And oftentimes I've had people who can't have nightshades. They have an, um, an autoimmune disease or an allergy and they can't eat nightshades and well, white potatoes are a nightshade. And so I'm like, okay, well, what can I use instead? Like, you know, they want me to make sure that there's soups. So what can I use instead? So I talk about that where I've like, you know, I've been in these instances where someone has a nightshade allergy. And so I've used cauliflower instead to make a potato and leek soup that everybody could eat. Right. And so I talk about that in there. And so, and so again, it's about the place from which the choice is coming from. It's not that like, oh, I'm choosing the cauliflower because I'm afraid of carbs and I want to be skinny and I want to be good. No, I'm choosing the cauliflower to honor the health needs of the woman leading the retreat who has an allergy to nightshades, who I know is not caught up in diet culture, right? And so I talk about it in the book. And, you know, one of the things that um, I really love to share with people is that this isn't an anti-health conversation. It isn't an anti-vegetable conversation, right? It's So I think you know, it's easy to like, look at my cookbook, for example, or look at my Instagram feed and you could easily judge it as being like orthorexic or being too healthy or being clean eating. That's I'm, I'm aware of that. Right. Like I, I'm not in denial about that. And I'm also really honoring myself and where I'm at and my own journey and my process, you know, and I share what's real for me on my account and what I enjoy and what I love. And like, I, I never started cooking until my recovery process. I wasn't the person in the kitchen cooking perfect food for myself. That wasn't my eating disorder. I didn't start cooking until recovery. And so for me, sharing my love of food and cooking with all different types of foods and living in Southern California where we have farmer's markets every single day of the week and, you know, access to abundantly beautiful produce, like these are things that I care about and and they're fun and I enjoy them and I, and they're creative self-expression for me. And so I'm staying true to myself, but I'm also showing people what's possible 
that you can have a healthy relationship with these foods that used to be really unhealthy for you because they were restrictive and punishing and, and you being good or whatever, you know? So I do my best. And I also just like to show people that it's totally possible to get to a place where this stuff isn't orthorexic for you, you know? Mm -hmm. No, thank you so much for sharing that because I think the more I talk with people and I'm, you know, in a similar field with you and it's just interesting. I think there's a lot of fear sometimes about, you know, people that are genuinely passionate about health and wellness of some sort, you know, there are kind, there's this fear of if I choose full recovery, like, do I have to give this up? And I just wanted to show, I mean, you are the prime example of it. When I was trying to think of someone to come on, that's just so educated, you know, just so immersed in both sides of it. Uh, you were the first one that came to mind because of it. Like you're just a very good example of it. And uh, I just love the way you share too. So very, you know, appreciate that. Thank you. And uh, I think you do a beautiful job too. The intention behind everything you create and share is just spot on. So thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you. I love hearing that. Thank you. That means so much to me. Yeah. Yes. And it's not that I like don't eat like cookies and drink beer. Yes. Like I do, all that. I do all that shit too, but like photographing my glass of wine is not nearly as pretty as my bowl of pasta, <laughs> you know? Um, but thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, where can everyone find you and your various forms of work? You've got the podcast, you've got your Instagram, uh, the book, and you also work with people too. So just, uh, you know, bling yourself up, let people know where they can find you. Yeah, totally. So Kara's Kitchen on Instagram, Kara with a C, Kitchen with a K. I hang out there most often. Um, My podcast, Love Your Bod Pod, you'll be on it soon. So come check that episode (laughs) out if, if you're listening to this in the future. And, uh, yes, kitchen.net is my website where you can find like my blog posts. You can find like testimonials from my clients. You can learn about coaching. So I work with people one-on-one and in groups right now. I have like two group programs going on right now. And then one-on-one and I'm on Twitter at Kara Corinne, which is my middle name, C-A-R-I-N. Oh, that was one of my favorite episodes so far on disordered eating and that entire oof diet culture mentality i just was so fired up after recording with kara after editing you know like listening through again there's just so much in this that i really hope resonates helps connects with you guys like we can beat this together diet culture does not have to run our lives if you like the show let us know tag us leave a rate interview for the show it's all appreciated or just thank you for listening. I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye.